On this episode of Hear Tell, a veteran reporter wrestles with the trauma inflicted by war, the addictive quest for story, and how we might heal after all that we've been through. A massive explosion behind me radiated through my body, knocking my tray out of my hands. I cringed, gritting my teeth. Spinning around, I saw a huge fireball burning through the top of the tent. My name is Andre Gallant. I'm the host of Hear Tell, a podcast about true stories and how they get told. We're a project of the Low Residency MFA and Narrative Nonfiction Program, housed in the Grady College of Journalism at the University of Georgia. My guest today is Jeremy Redman, a 2019 graduate of the program. He's reading an essay called December 21 and What Came After, about his experiences covering American wars in Iraq and what he witnessed and how it affects him today. This essay was originally published by The War Horse, a nonprofit news website dedicated to telling stories about military service and the impact of war. There's a link to the essay in the show notes. In the essay, Jeremy does a thorough job of delivering his personal backstory and his professional resume. So I'll keep my introduction short. Jeremy is an experienced reporter with family ties to the military who embeds with troops stationed in Iraq in the early 2000s. He goes there to watch one of the biggest news stories of the young century unfold. He also goes there to better understand his father, who made a career in the Air Force and served multiple tours in Vietnam. Jeremy reads the essay in a few minutes, and afterwards, we talk about how he faced trauma, the power of storytelling and his healing process, and how he's passing what he's learned about reporting on traumatic events to the next generation of journalists. about you experiencing trauma as a result of reporting on uh, the involvement of the United States in war zones abroad and how you began to listen and, and process that trauma. But there's also this, it also serves as a brief resume of your work as a journalist and, and how trauma weaves its way into your work. And so first of all, I'm interested in, in how you thought through the process of putting this into narrative form and like what your first steps were in doing that. Yeah, so, you know, this happened, what, uh, more than 15 years ago? And it's been a story that I've been carrying around for all that time. And the, what inspired me to write it, first of all, was I just, wanted to be able to express it in a way that people can understand it. Cause I would tell people what had happened when I was reporting in Iraq and I'd get this blank expression and it was frustrating and alienating. Um, so I just had this story in me and I wanted to get it out. And so I knew, you know, the climactic moment is the suicide bombing. I didn't want to start there. I wanted to kind of, use some foreshadowing. So I opened the scene on our first night in Mosul, Iraq, where the unit we were embedded with had found a roadside bomb. And they called in um, the specialized troops that uh, are involved in removing these bombs. And what that did for me is it helped get the reader right into the story um, and let them know something was coming. And I foreshadow it, you know, saying I'm nearly killed later in the story. 
but I wanted to put the reader on the ground right away. I wanted to understand the peril that was at stake um, without, you know, getting too deeply into the story because that whole section involving, you know, the suicide bombing is going to take some time to, to write and to build out for the reader. So that's why I started it the way I did. So related to that and, and you know, the years that have passed since, uh, the experience and, and you beginning to, to, to work on the piece and what, what, what's your, what's your reporter's notebook in your mind? Like, uh, like what, what was that vault filled with and, and, and how did those pieces begin to emerge as you wrote? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so as a, you know, a journalist, a newspaper reporter, you know, we rely on our memory a lot, but, I had the benefit of being embedded with a photographer. So I had access to all of his photos. Dean Hoffmeyer is an incredible photographer who was in the suicide bombing with me and survived it, was even closer than I was to the blast um, and had the presence and the stamina and dexterity to shoot photos moments after the explosion. So in addition to my own memories, which are um, not only um, images in my mind, but the experiences, the emotional experiences of it. You know, when something, when you're nearly killed, uh, you have images from that time that you just don't let go. But I also had access to actual photos from the incident, um, dozens of them that Dean has shared with me. Um, so that, that's what I was drawing on was that, but you know, I'd done a lot of reporting for the paper I was, in, I was working for at the time, the Richmond Times Dispatch, so I can go back and look at those clips. What's, what's your relationship like with those photographs? Yeah, it's, it's weird, Dan. I have some distance from it. When, when they were, um, when it was fresh, when it just happened, you know, it was hard to look at. Uh, I really didn't want to talk about it. And in fact, you know, my, one of my editors at the time asked me if, hey, could we, could you write a column about your experience? This is just days after the event. And I didn't want to, cause it was just too, um, it was too close to what had just happened. And I was um, too much affected by it at the moment. But now that I have some distance from it, I can see it um, perhaps in context and I can, you know, remove myself a little bit from it and see it from a distance. Thinking in those terms, did it, uh, prompt you to think differently about objectivity in journalism in your kind of role uh, as that witness, as that I, or as that third person? And I'll answer that and tell me if I'm answering your question. Um, I, I thought about it this way is that for many years I thought about, you know, do I have a place to write this story? Should I be writing this story? And, um, you know, I was like, well, how many people have, how many journalists have been that close to a suicide bombing that have survived it? So that was part of what was driving me is that I, I had a unique position to write about this. But the tension here, Andre, as you know, is you were a newspaper reporter like me, is we are loath to write about ourselves. We avoid it. And we want to be that neutral observer um, who is like that invisible um, narrator who's telling you everything that happens without, you know, turning the lens on ourselves, you know, but going through the master of finance program that uh, you and I graduated from, I got to the point where uh, reading, you know, books like heavy by Kese Lehman and, and others that 
I felt the courage after reading that, that if they did it, I learned something from them, that there was power in sharing my own story. And I go back to the point that uh, I couldn't not write about it because I felt other people could benefit from my perspective. And now, here's Jeremy Redman reading December 21 and what came after. The shopping bag lying in the street appeared harmless. Black and plastic, it looked like a piece of garbage that had drifted into the middle of the road, though this one sat in the crater of a bomb that damaged vehicles a few days earlier. I wanted to jump into the action immediately that night, 15 years ago in Mosul. After I arrived, I joined some US combat engineers racing to investigate the bag. As we watched from a safe distance, a pair of bomb disposal troops piloted a remote control robot with plastic explosives in its claw. Fire in the hole, one of the troops yelled. The explosion vibrated through my chest. In the debris, the soldiers found pieces of an anti-tank mine, batteries, and a remote control receiver. The experience was a reminder of the peril in Iraq, perhaps a hint of what would happen four days later on December 21st, 2004, when I would nearly be killed. A warning of the trauma that comes from reporting on war. I am the son of a decorated Vietnam War veteran. My family moved often as we followed my father's career in the U.S. Air Force. We flew on cargo planes, lived in base housing, and went to military hospitals. Now settled in North Georgia, I have reported for newspapers for 25 years, often about the military. I have written about the stress families endure during combat deployments. I have written about the massive backlog of veteran healthcare applications. I have written about the alarmingly high veteran suicide rate. I believe it is my responsibility to write about these things because I grew up in a military family and because of what I survived in Iraq. I believe I owe something for that. I felt compelled to go there in 2004. The war was the big story then, and it frustrated me that I wasn't writing about it. Young and ambitious, I craved more adventure than covering City Hall for the Richmond Times-Dispatch. Subconsciously, I also wanted to report on the war to better understand and be closer to my father, who killed himself after doctors found a lesion on his brain and diagnosed him with multiple sclerosis and an abnormal heart rhythm. I was 14 when he dropped me off at high school one day and never returned home. I wasn't worried about the dangers in Iraq, or maybe I was naive. I learned the 276 Engineer Battalion, a Virginia National Guard unit, was hunting roadside bombs and fortifying military outposts and eating civilians in Mosul, Iraq's second largest city. I invited a photographer at the newspaper, Dean Hoffmeyer, to go with me. An Indiana native, he has a self-deprecating sense of humor and is passionate about his work, though he doesn't sensationalize what we do as journalists. We flew to Kuwait, where we caught a military flight to Ford Operating Base Merez, a sprawling post that encompassed a graveyard of Iraqi tanks, as well as Iraq's oldest Christian monastery. Once there, I wanted to write about an Iraqi man I met who worked as a contractor at Merez. He made friends and money painting portraits of troops, but Dean and I needed to get lunch first. We headed to the chow hall, a huge white tent sitting atop a hill. It operated like a school cafeteria with warming trays full of burgers, chicken fingers, and fries. Insurgents repeatedly fired mortars at the tent, once killing a female soldier outside at the summer before our arrival. 
Scanning the food line, nothing caught my interest. I craved something different, something like Cincinnati chili or pasta topped with chili and cheese. I left Dean in the line and headed to the pasta bar in the center of the tent. A smiling contractor stood there, at attention, wearing a white apron. He had just served me a bowl of macaroni topped with tomato sauce when I heard it and felt it. A massive explosion behind me radiated through my body, knocking my tray out of my hands. I cringed, gritting my teeth. Spinning around, I saw a huge fireball burning through the top of the tent. Soldiers scrambled toward me, fleeing the flames. Instinctively, I turned on my heels and ran after them through a side exit, finding a concrete blast shelter full of troops. There was little room left. I felt absurd standing half inside it and was curious what had just happened. I headed back, worrying about Dean. I jotted down in my notebook what I observed. Someone screamed, Medic! A soldier cried, complaining she couldn't hear. Troops bravely rushed into the tent. They brought out one soldier whose face was pale and greenish and who was gasping for air. Another soldier with a serious head wound was already dead. His comrades gently slid him into a body bag. I turned away, wishing I hadn't seen that and knowing I would never forget it for the rest of my life. I went back inside the chow hall. Slippery with blood, the floor was strewn with half-eaten food, kitchen utensils, and overturned tables and chairs. Torn flaps of tent hung down from the ceiling like the shredded skin of a gaping wound, allowing sunlight to pour in. The blast hit where we sat the day before. I had just walked through that area on the way to the pasta bar, moments before the explosion, and was probably going back to that spot to eat. Counting my steps, I measured the center of the blast to the pasta bar where I stood. Fifty paces. That's what separated me from serious injury or death. Dean was much closer. The explosion turned everything around him bright orange and knocked him to the floor. Through the ringing in his ears, he could hear a man scream. Dean shot photos through the doorway leading into the seating area. Men crawled on all fours. Bodies were sprawled on the floor. Turning around, Dean spotted a soldier lying on his back a few feet from him. Much of his throat was missing. Blood squirting from his wound soaked Dean's pants. Troops and kitchen workers rushed to the wounded man's aid. Tasting burnt metal on his tongue, Dean crawled into the seating area. He aimed his camera at two troops carrying a comrade. Next, he snapped photos of troops rushing into the tent to help. They transformed the overturned tables into stretchers. Struck by their courage, Dean kicked away chairs, clearing a path for them. One of the soldiers asked him to leave. For my men, will you please go outside? Dean complied, heading back out to look for me. I wandered back outside and found Dean. We locked eyes on each other and then got back to reporting amid the dazed soldiers wobbling around and the medics triaging the wounded. We suspected the insurgents had finally succeeded in hitting the tent with a mortar. Or maybe they hit it with a pinpoint rocket attack. That was what one of the officers on the scene speculated. That evening, I interviewed the brigadier general in charge of that region. Tears rimming in his eyes, he told me the blast possibly came from a planted bomb. 23 people were killed and dozens were injured. Among the dead were the bomber and 14 U.S. service members including two from the Virginia unit we were covering. Four U.S. contractors and four Iraqi troops were also killed. 
my reporting and Dean's photos were picked up by the Associated Press and published around the world. The Pentagon eventually confirmed what happened. There was no mortar or rocket attack. An insurgent dressed as an Iraqi soldier, Iraqi troops were being trained by U.S. forces at Merez, snuck onto the sprawling base without passing through one of its official entrances. News reports identified him as Ahmad Saeed Ahmad al-Ghamdi, a 20-year-old Saudi medical student. He sat down in the most crowded part of the tent during the busiest part of the lunch hour and detonated a suicide vest packed with ball bearings. Ansar al-Sunnah, an extremist Islamic militant group, took responsibility and then released a video claiming to show its preparations. Dean and I spent several more weeks reporting in Iraq before returning home, exhausted. We are not victims, and we do not seek pity, just understanding of what journalists experience covering war. We also do not compare ourselves to the soldiers. Our respect for them grew as we witnessed what they endure. Many saw sustained combat. Most were away from their families for much longer than us. They had no choice but to stay, while we chose to be there and could leave whenever we wanted. Many were required to go on missions outside the wire. Dean and I could choose to stay behind. Many were seriously injured in the suicide bombing. We didn't suffer a scratch, or at least we had no visible wounds. Dean suffered from anxiety long before Iraq. It got worse afterward. He became paranoid seeing snipers in Richmond who weren't really there. He changed lanes beneath Virginia overpasses to avoid people dropping bombs on him. His stress strained his marriage and made it difficult for him to work. He remembers shooting photos of a high school girls basketball game just days after returning from Iraq and thinking, what is the point? Today, he worries much of his journalistic curiosity has been burned away by what he experienced. The Richmond newspaper referred us to the same therapist when we got back. I saw him once, spilled my guts about losing my father and about what I experienced in Iraq, and then I never returned. I worried about being stigmatized. In retrospect, I know I should have gone back for more help. Like Dean, I was jumpy when I got home. Slamming car trunks unnerved me. The whoosh of air around me felt like a bomb going off. A garbage truck dropping a dumpster back in place made my heart pound. I had nightmares about trying to escape a rock. One day, someone left a bag just outside the window of a restaurant where I was having lunch with my wife. I couldn't focus on anything until the restaurant staff removed it. I scanned the sides of roads for suspicious objects. At times, I was impatient and had a hair-trigger temper. I had also become addicted to the life and death stories I wrote from Iraq, the adventure, the adrenaline. It was hard for me to resume covering government, development, politics. They weren't nearly as compelling to me as the war. Months after returning from Mosul, I took a new job reporting for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I wasn't there long before I volunteered to return to Iraq, where I spent 10 weeks covering a Georgia National Guard brigade in Baghdad and Western Iraq. I worried my luck was running out, and I volunteered to return for a third visit to Iraq spanning six weeks. On that last assignment, I reported on a Marine Reserve unit from Georgia that retrieved the remains of fallen U.S. troops. At some point, I started tallying my close calls. One evening, a rocket sailed over me at a military outpost south of Baghdad. Another time, insurgent mortar rounds exploded around me at a different outpost in a region nicknamed the Sunni Triangle of Death. In all, five convoys I rode in were attacked with roadside bombs. When Dean and I reported in the city of Talafar, an improvised explosive device sprayed the Humvee in front of ours with shrapnel, flattened two of its tires, 
engulfed it in smoke, and shook up the military chaplain inside. The next year, an IED struck the Humvee in front of the truck I was riding in near Mamadia, blowing much of its front end off and causing one of the soldiers inside to rocket out of his seat and bite off part of his tongue. The blast knocked out the driver, slamming him so hard against the steering wheel that he bent it. On Thanksgiving Day in 2005, I finally felt what it was like to be in a vehicle hit by one of these bombs. The blast struck the side of the Humvee I was riding in through western Iraq, enveloping me and the soldiers inside with thick smoke and sand and dizzying our gunner. I felt the explosion suck the air from my lungs. I was so full of adrenaline and so alert that evening that I couldn't sleep. In retrospect, these events made me feel more alive. My preoccupation with them reflected my urge to be as close as possible to the action, to the story, my addiction to the adrenaline, my addiction to living on the edge, my romantic view of my life as a journalist, my vanity, trauma on top of trauma. It all amounted to a bright, glowing neon sign warning me that I needed to go home to my wife and infant daughter to stop testing my luck, to write about other things. I saw that sign then, but I could not read it. Now its message is clear. I became desensitized to much of everything else while reporting in Iraq. I hung on to the military beat, writing about more troop deployments, treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder, and efforts to recover and identify the remains of missing troops. Eventually, I was assigned to cover immigrants and refugees in the United States and found their plight particularly compelling. I also began reporting on the opioid abuse epidemic, a deadly crisis that has grabbed my attention and won't let go. It took years, but I finally rediscovered my passion for writing about a variety of subjects, my purpose, and now I find the work deeply fulfilling again. This year, I met a bearded and bespeckled man named Khalid Nasir at a reporting workshop in Amman, Jordan, organized by the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma. A family counselor based in Beirut, Nasir has treated dozens of journalists who report on war and other traumatic events. Strangely, he comforted me when he told me the troubles I have experienced, hypervigilance, nightmares, alienation, are common among the journalists he sees, that I am not alone. Journalists who report on war, he told me, should thoroughly plan not only for their perilous assignments, but the healing that must happen after them. For me, the healing has partly come from officiating NCAA lacrosse, reading and writing, all things that force me to focus on the moment. I often think about December 21st and wonder why Dean and I survived. If we had missed our connecting flight in Amsterdam to Kuwait, as we almost did, we wouldn't have been there to report on the attack. If we had been quicker that day, we probably would have sat near the suicide bomber. If I had not craved Cincinnati chili, I could have ended up like the soldier who died next to Dean. The precise time we woke up that day, however long it took for us to get dressed, the ride we got to the mess tent, all of those things put us in position to bear witness to that tragic event and report it to the world. I have grown much stronger. Though sometimes I wonder what trauma will come next, whether I can brace for it, how I will report on it, how I will heal from it. So we talk a lot on this show about the, um, the power of narrative and, but we're, always talking about it 
in a in a very positive way, like a generative way, like what narrative creates, like how can it change our lives for the better? Um, but there's this kind of, in a way, narrative has a different has different characteristics in your story, like uh, your search for that narrative, like that addiction you start to feel um, in in reporting. Uh, and I wonder what's your relationship now, having gone through this, um, what's your relationship to that search for story now to the quest of narrative and, um, given how you've been on multiple sides of it in your life? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I hadn't thought about that way, Andre. Um, for me, um, there's several things going on here. Um, you know, it's wanting to tell a story and express myself. It is um, wanting to uh, get readers to understand an experience I went through that I could never really seem to get them to understand through conversation. But there's an aspect here of me wanting to people to understand journalists and what we experience covering trauma. And I really wanted to get that message across that um, the work we do is important and it's hard and it affects us and trauma goes two ways. It affects the people we write about and the journalists themselves. You know, so I think one of the, the points that helped me get to this point where I could write about it was actually as a reporter writing about people who had experienced trauma, you know, covering fires and floods and tornadoes and hurricanes and even the pandemic today and seeing the bravery of the people who are sharing their harrowing stories with me, um, who either lost somebody or narrowly survived a situation themselves and feeling that if they can bear witness to their trauma, that I should be able to bear witness to mine, that if they can do it, I should be able to do it. So I see it not only as a way to express myself, to find story, but I want it to be, I want it to help other people. And part of our job as journalists is to bear witness to trauma, to let people know it exists, that it is true. Um, and that they're not alone. Bringing up your partner, your, uh, your partner, Dean again. Um, and, I, and you described kind of his outlook on all of this stuff is that he wasn't the, the kind of, or isn't the kind of person to, um, who would sensationalize, um, the work of a, a of a correspondent in, in a war zone. Um, but I, and th this is related to that kind of, um, that uh, the the narrative quest, um, that almost addictive narrative that you describe yourself going on in in, uh, uh, in the story, um, where there's this uh, balance between uh, pain and prestige, right? Of of doing work that's read and shared by the AP, the Associated Press. Um, so, how did you view Dean? You know. D didn't like to, as I said, sensationalize his work. What, what was the, what was the balance like for you during that time of, you know, wanting to report more, um, wanting to follow the next story and find the next, uh, uh, hot zone. Um, but also notice that, you know, there is, uh, there's some detrimental aspects to this. Yeah. There's a lot of things to unpack there. One is, is certainly part of what drove me to this was ambition as a journalist, right? This is the mm -hmm. big story at the time. Um, 
but it was complicated. That wasn't the only thing that I wanted to go for. There were other reasons. You know, I was just fascinated uh, all my life by military history. My father was in the military. Um, this would help me understand him. Um, but certainly an aspect of it was pursuing the story as a competitive journalist and wanting to report on the big story at the time. This was the second year of the war. They invaded Iraq in 2003. We were going in 2004. And I volunteered to go, came up with the plan and pitched it. And I picked Dean because he's such a great photographer, just got great empathy in his photography. The other thing that, you know, that I lucked out by is he's older than me and wiser than me. And he had the sense of, you know, keeping the focus on the soldiers that we were uncovering and reminding me of that. Because after the suicide bombing, it was world news. I mean, it was, like you said, it was picked up by the Associated Press. Uh, all the major publications were covering it. CNN interviewed me, um, NPR, and even Canadian uh, broadcasting the radio station for, for Canada, NPR version of yeah. For Canada. And it was a heady, overwhelming, surrealistic point because they wanted to obviously interview someone who'd been in the suicide bombing that killed, you know, more than 20 people and injured 70 people to get, you know, that perspective. And so um, Dean was wisely in the background saying he didn't want to do any of the interviews. And, you know, I did them and he was just saying, remember, keep the, the focus on the soldiers. So at one point, one of the, I remember one of the commentators or um, people interviewing me was asking me how I felt um, and how it affected me. And I, I quickly tried to change the subject to turn it away back to the troops. Um, the, the thing that was going on at the time though, there were certainly several levels of, of addiction going on. One was the addiction to the adrenaline of, you know, when you're, you, you know, you, are nearly killed and you have that adrenaline pump up, it is a powerful experience where you feel things more intensely, you see things in more detail. I heard things with a level of clarity that I hadn't heard before. Smells were sharper and it is an addicting experience covering that, not to mention covering a huge story, right? And it's hard and I found it really difficult to go back to covering other things after this. This is the story. This is life and death. This is what everyone's talking mm -hmm. about. But there were the, although the, there was also the other things going on, the hypervigilance, the uh, addiction to the adrenaline, uh, the nightmares that came after it. So there was tension and many points of that assignment for me. Um, but I count my lucky stars that, um, I wasn't doing it alone and that Dean was with me. You were able to broaden the scope of your reporting and it helped you, you know, think of your work in a, in a more holistic way. Um, you, you, you were writing about refugees and, and various things here um, with the Atlanta journal constitution. Um, what, you know, what do you think it was about those stories that you started pursuing that helped you, um, you know, rekindle uh, your connection to, to your work? And uh, like what are the connections between the stories you're covering now and, and, and uh, what you were trying to find? 
Yeah, I think that's a good question. I understand what you're getting at is, you know, it, first of all, it was, I had to go back to writing about other things. I had to force myself to do it. And it, I didn't see it then. And it seemed hopeless at the time because I went back to Iraq twice after that because I didn't want to go back yeah. to writing about other things. Um, but eventually I forced myself and I, you know, I ended up, you know, covering politics and uh, being assigned to cover immigration and refugees. And part of it is Andre is selfish, though, that what it did was, you know, writing about refugees and immigrants to me is one of the most important, you know, human rights stories of our generation, particularly with what's going on right now with immigration. But it was also a way for me to um, travel with these stories. Um, yeah. And I'm, 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 I don't mean like literally, but to, to write about people and to learn about their cultures and, you know, virtually travel with them. And just like I'd be doing in Iraq, you know, going and learning about another culture and seeing different people and meeting um, new people. And so that aspect to me, I, I enjoyed, but I also found just the work fulfilling and I found um, the, the need for empathy in the writing and, and how important that is. And it was another way to also express myself, but to also get people to understand and to see trauma in different ways and bear witness to it. Right. So if you, if we think of narrative as an arc, as a beginning, middle and an end, and in these stories of immigration and refugees, you were able to tell these stories um, through their arcs, not through just their, you know, a traumatic incident or whatever. You were, you, you were, you were able to engage in other people's stories from, uh, from start to finish. And in many cases, they were stories with happy endings. And I wonder if being able to think about your work in that sense was, um, was generative for you. Yeah, so the example I would use would be um, a woman who's a remarkable medical doctor here in Clarkston, uh, Dr. Gulshan Harji. And I wrote a piece about her for the Atlanta Journal Constitution. And it just ties back to your question and some of the other questions you've asked today is she, you know, grew up in, in Africa and, you know, goes through all these trials and tribulations, um, illness, war, and then immigrates to America. And she marries, uh, the man that she'd fallen in love with and he is killed in a mass shooting in Atlanta. And it's just terribly uh, affects her family and there's this amazing grief that she has to go through, but she endures through resilience. She's a Muslim and she cites, you know, part of the Quran that talks about, you know, testing your faith that you'll be tested. Mm. Yeah. Um, and she, just through her own resilience overcomes and then creates this clinic to help refugees, fellow refugees um, in Clarkston for free. And so in writing the story, you know, her arc and her perseverance, it got to me to start to realize that, you know, if she, she's brave enough to tell the story, then I should be able to write mine. Mm -hmm. um, so there was power in that for me. Do you mind, can I ask about your father? Yeah. You write, and you said it in our, as we talked here, that, that going to Iraq 
and and being close to war was a way for you to better understand him. Um, in, in doing that, and then you know jumping forward now, having you know thought through all of those experiences to to write this piece and to uh, you know teach trauma in terms of journalism in a college setting. Um, you know, what did you figure out? Yeah, it's a good question. And I've been wrestling with that, but I think, you know, again, among the reasons why I went to Iraq was, um, you know, it was a combination of things. It was, like I said, ambition as a journalist, um, chasing the big story, but it was a way to test myself. And it was a way to understand who my father was. So he was a decorated Vietnam war veteran. He flew in more than 300 combat missions over Vietnam. And it was when and he was in one of the biggest um, combat operations uh, during the Vietnam War, so Operation Linebacker Two, which was right toward the end of the war. He flew in four of the 11 days of that bombing campaign and was um, given numerous commendations for his actions. So, you know, for me, it was, his death was um, very traumatic for me and my family. And, and it was something very hard for me to talk about. So that was a big part of the story too, is actually for the first time writing about his suicide. Mm -hmm. So he uh, killed himself when I was 14 and I had found it very difficult to talk about it because it was so traumatic up until this point. So all these things are converging, right? And yeah. I'm reporting on other people's trauma. I go off to Iraq and experience a near-death experience myself. And what that does, and what I've learned from it, to answer your question, is I felt like I went to Iraq to get some of the courage that he had in Vietnam to keep going up mm -hmm. in those planes repeatedly, knowing that he could be shot down and have to parachute out and maybe be captured, imprisoned, tortured. To have that courage to write about him and learn more about who he was. So, in addition to writing about, you know, my experience in Iraq, I've done a lot of research on him and his military service. Um, so it was, for me, it was about trying to get the strength to do that. Mm. And going to Iraq gave me the confidence, I felt. I'm wondering how you told yourself that you didn't have the courage. I don't know. Before. Yeah, it's... How did you convince yourself that you didn't have it? You know, I think for me, it was people asking me about, and it's common, people have good intentions. They want to show that they care and they are curious and they ask you, you know, how did your father die? And for years, it was too hard for me to talk about because it would take me to that point when the police came to our door to let us know that they had found him. And it's a re-traumatizing experience talking about it. For years it was. Yeah. And so I would tell people, um, you know, it's a long story. I'll tell you some other time. But it, I would dwell on it and it would bring me back to that point. And um, so it wasn't that I knew that I didn't have the courage. I felt it, Andrea, that I mm. – um, but by writing it in this story that we're talking about today, I expressed it. I put it out there and I controlled it. Mm -hmm. And so now I feel like I can talk about it much more easily. And I'm 48 years old now. I mean, this happened when I was 14 when he killed himself. Mm. Um, 
so this is part of my process. The story wasn't obviously directly about my father, it was about my experience in Iraq, but a piece of it was about him and it did something for me that nothing else has done before. And it, it gave me the strength, the courage to, you know, to go and be more open about it. Um, mm-hmm. And going through the MFA program helped get me to that point. Everything we've talked about before, writing about other people's trauma, reading about memoir, the power of memoir, sharing our stories, bearing witness mm-hmm. to our own trauma. You know, I want the story to be helpful to others, but it's been helpful for me too. It's almost like you had to learn how to tell your story in a different way. Yeah. You were, you were, you were, you were, you were employing methods that, you know, that were, that were maybe hurting you. But then as, as soon as you were able to restructure and, and refocus that narrative, you realize that, you know, you are powerful all along. Yeah. I mean, there's a power in being able to express something that you've been through and putting order and structure to it. You know, when you carry things around all your life and then you can uh, put it out there in a way that, I don't know, um, vividly describes what you've done. What to me, the metaphor is almost like I'm um, taking this, you know, thing that I've been carrying around and finally putting it down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I just, you know, I wonder, you know, as a writer and maybe you've had this experience too, but you have to write something in order to write other things that by writing this piece, maybe this frees me to write other things that I couldn't do or haven't been able to, to this point. When you're uh, writing about other people, um, you know, it makes sense. It, it absolutely makes sense to never have the author of the story step in, right? I, I understand why we, uh, in our craft, advise that we don't do that, right? But at the same time, it's like sometimes you have to step in and kind of, um, if nothing else, state your lens, like kind of explain your lens of the world and explain your biases um, and explain uh, uh, your privilege in in entering that story, which was something I think I had uh, fought against trying to be in 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 writing about uh, other people, other cultures, all this stuff. But I found it very in, uh, helpful when you know, even if it was just a sentence or, or or a short graph, that where I could say like, "This is who I am. This is how I came to this story, and this is what I'm trying to do with it." Yeah. And to just, you know, I guess in entertainment's terms, breaking that fourth wall um, and just letting the the reader know explicitly where you're coming from. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I felt like, um, you know, looking back at my work, I, I can tell that a lot of my writing about trauma has been cathartic for me, actually. And again, I felt I have a responsibility after writing about so much people who've endured trauma um, to show, share my own story that how can I have them be so brave and write about this stuff and not write about mine and bear witness to myself? Yeah. Um, it just didn't seem fair. Can I ask a question about your family? Yeah. How have you measured or in terms of, 
of the relationship with your your wife and children. Have you been able to to, to measure how going through this this catharsis has has changed how you interact with your family? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, to take you back, you know, when I first went to Iraq in 2004, so I was married and my daughter was an infant at the time. So it really, you know, I look back on that decision and I, and I regret it in some ways because I was leaving them to go off to do this with the possibility I was going to be killed. And I nearly was, but I was almost in a, tra- a trance, Andre, doing this. Like I felt like I had to do it. Um, pursuing this assignment and going back a second and a third time when my daughter was, you know, still young. Um, So I owe them in many ways, Joanne, you know, having such a great, you know, being so strong and supportive while I was away. But in in writing about this, you know, because I was, as I wrote, I was dealing with nightmares and hypervigilance after these assignments. And, um, I could see the concern, you know, written on my wife's face when I was dealing with this stuff. But in writing this piece for the Warhorse, what it did was it was cathartic for me, um, particularly about writing about my father. And what it's done is it's, I feel like it's helped me at least turn the camera around and see my own hypervigilance and my overprotectiveness because I'm that way with my kids. Like, you know, I very watchful, um, don't want anything to happen to my daughter who's 16 now and my son who's 12 and are very guarded around them and probably too much. So, but writing about this, I can see, you know, how, uh, those experiences in Iraq and my father's death when I was a teenager are still reverberating in my life today. So I think a a good step is recognizing it for me. And my wife has told me that she has seen me improve since I've been writing about these things, Um, that she's noticed a change for the better. Um, And I think that's true. And, you know, the thing is I, you know, my kids are still in the house and I, I want to really enjoy the time that they're with us. They'll be graduating from high school and not very long. Um, so I've got no, no more work to do on myself, but at least I can see where I need to work. You were, you're teaching this class um, as we talk here in the late summer of 2020, you're teaching a class on, on reporting and trauma at Kennesaw state university. Now I'm wondering, um, you know, one, what kind of lessons from your life are you bringing to that classroom? And, um, you know, like what are the, uh, you know, the things that you, uh, recommend and, and don't recommend, um, in, in, in terms of how you're basing that on what you went through? Yeah. Um, so this is a class on reporting on trauma and it's at Kennesaw state university and it's the first time we've taught this class. I created it for the university and it's about reporting responsibly on traumatic events and people who've experienced it. And so I have an extensive amount of experience doing that. And so I bring my own personal stories to it and I tell them about, and uh, the work I've done reporting on the coronavirus pandemic. 
um, and on the protest for racial justice and reporting in Iraq. So everything I will be talking about during the course of the semester with my students is things I've written about. Um, and I think the one thing if they learn from this class that I hope they will carry with them is empathy. And uh, it's the perhaps the greatest and most important tool that journalists have. Um, and so we'll, we'll go into in a level of detail with them later in the semester about how to approach an interview with someone who's just been through a traumatic event, um, how to give them some control over the interview, um, how to report responsibly and compassionately on them, and the benefits of them sharing their stories, that it certainly, certainly can be cathartic for them. There's also a service to have to be sharing their story to help others learn that they're not alone. Um, so I'm really excited about it. And I think it's a really important class. And I wish there was more discussion about this in journalism today. You know, a lot of uh, the writing and reporting I'm doing now is directly inspired by the Dark Center for Journalism and Trauma and mm-hmm. Bruce Shapiro and all the pioneers, Frank Ockberg, who have focused on this level of journalism, that how journalism, what it is and how to fix people and how it can affect journalists. Um, it's really uh, a responsibility of, of news media organizations and editors to watch out for this and the impact that these events have on journalists covering the pandemic right now, right? We're, covering the yeah. protest for racial justice, that trauma doesn't stay in just one spot. It, it goes both ways. It can affect the writer as well as the person. So I'm, I'm excited, super excited to be teaching this course. Yeah. Uh, that's actually this, it's something that's come up in, in, in a couple of fields and people I talk to, uh, one is, um, police officers. Yeah. Two is social workers. So it's, um, and of course journalists. So it's people who are like, you know, uh, consistently trauma adjacent, adjacent. Yeah. Um, and it's not in our natures to say, you know, that the things that we're hearing about or witnessing are, 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 are hurting us because we are not the center of the pain, right? It's, it, it, it would be centering pain on us when it's, um, you know, when the, when the focus needs to be on other people, but it's, it's like you said, it's, you know, there needs to be this, you know, some kind of recognition that even being adjacent to the trauma requires, um, requires care. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so before I wrote that piece, I went to Amon Jordan with the Dart Center for Journalism and Trauma and they, they brought a bunch of journalists out there, including me, to talk about how to responsibly report on Syrian refugees and the trauma they were enduring. And that's where I met Khalid Nasser, this therapist in Beirut, who came to Amon Jordan with this great guy. And I learned from him the importance of, you know, you know, we think so much focused on the logistics of doing our assignments. Like, how are we going to get into the country? How are we going to get from point A to point B? Who are we going to talk to? How are we going to write and report the stories? But we don't think about the healing that needs to happen after we go cover these traumatic events. That needs to be built into what we're doing in between covering things like the pandemic and the protests for racial justice or going to a war zone, that you need to have a plan for what happens after that. Mm-hmm. Right. What happens after? <laughs> um, 
and as you said, you know, you're still doing this work on yourself. You're doing this work uh, with uh, the next generation uh, of journalists. Um, you know, answer this however you feel, but what what is coming after? What is what do you have your sights set on? Yeah, um, I just want to continue to write good stories. You know, I I feel like the doors have opened for me that, you know, writing a piece like this is somewhat liberating, if I could use that term, to go and write other things. That this is the only thing I want to write about. You know, I think this has been pent up for a long time, you know, this, the trauma. Um, and I, I want to digress for a second, too, Andre, is that there are good things that come from this as well, that this is not all woe is me and doom and gloom. To be clear, trauma can really injure people for long yeah. and long lasting ways uh, that will never heal. But there is also something called post-traumatic growth that yeah. people who've been through terrible trauma can actually go on to do great things. And I'm not saying about myself, but like Gulshan Harji, you know, who would survive illness and war and the, the death of her husband and go and create this community health center to provide free healthcare for refugees that you can grow and persevere after trauma. So I hope I can find that for myself and continue to write uh, other stories about other things. You know, I have a lot of interest, um, you know, that I, I want to pursue. I want to continue to teach and I want to continue to write um, long form narrative nonfiction. It's my passion. And I miss the MFA program. I wish I was still in it now so I could be reading all these great books and having all these great conversations with you and all the others. Um, but yeah, um, continue to grow as a person, but I also want to keep teaching and I want to keep writing. And, you know, I hope there's more to come. Yeah. Well, um, I think embedded in my question uh, and certainly forefront of your story is that this is a narrative of growth uh, that you, you know, I think uh, you are, you are, you are not focusing on the woe you you're focusing on progress for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying. Um, you know, it's just a weird thing, you know, to, like we talked about earlier, it's to shift the lens and focus on myself. It didn't feel, it felt really strange, but once I started doing it, I kind of broke the shackles on that journalists never writing about themselves. And it was just, uh, I don't know, the, the MFA program and writing pieces like this have been transformative for me. It changed my life. I'm a different person. Well, I guess uh, as the host of the show, I can't, ask for much better than that um thank you for sharing the story and and, and thanks for uh, uh working through these questions with me well thank you andre i really appreciate you thank you so much for doing this to learn more about hear tell and the low residency mfa narrative nonfiction program at the university of georgia visit bit.ly slash hear tell podcast Again, that's bit.ly slash podcast. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We're at Podcasts on all platforms. 
Hear Tell will be back soon for another true story.